0: Or a manager uh, harasses a lower employee. Summary judgment grant here at all?
1: The fact that it's a co-employee does that make summary well, judgment more or less likely, or is that irrelevant to a summary judgment determination?
0: I, I in this instance, I don't think it's relevant. And why not? Well, because uh, she was a supervisor and he was a maintenance coordinator. Now, I'm not clear. The record establishes that a maintenance coordinator is not some kind of supervisor, but I'm assuming that he isn't. Uh, I I don't think it's any different because somebody has to uh, be in charge of... uh, The behavior of employees and my client was a supervisor uh, but this was beyond her and she went up channels to see that it stopped Um, now the court the beginning of the second does the
2: record tell us was she supervising this individual mr. Johnson
0: no The beginning of the sexual harassment uh, occurred when she was talking uh, to the harasser and and, uh, passed a uh, table with some leftover food from a party. And she invited him to have something to eat. And he uh, looked at her and said, actually said it three times, I will eat you, I will eat you, I will eat you, I eat women. This comment was followed by a persistent facial demonstration of providing oral sex to a woman whenever he saw her. So.
1: Where in the record does it say that?
0: Well, it, it, it says that in, in her deposition. Um, I'm not exactly sure, but I think it's on page 114 of her deposition. Every time he made this demonstration to her, she understood what he was doing he was repeating the invitation he gave her the inappropriate one to eat her and uh, the the district court saw that this was something that crossed the line. he said it it crossed the line and uh, that should have been the aha moment when he denied the summary judgment ending her case. But yet, he granted the motion which ended her case. However-
3: Council, I have a question on that, because um, it seemed to me that he looked at a published Court of Appeals case, Geis Miller, and looked at how there were egregious facts in that case, and yet summary judgment was granted there. Um, and so it seemed to me that the district court just said, well, uh, this is egregious, it it happened once, and it doesn't really match up to what happened in Geis-Miller. Do we have the power today to overrule Geis-Miller?
0: Yes, you do.
3: And and um, I know that the Supreme Court in Harris um, you know, looked at applications of case law that had applied um, the, the after the Vinson case. It had applied at too high standard. Some of the other cases that ha- decided sexual harassment had required like actual psychological harm or something like that. And the Supreme Court said, no, you know, j- there are egregious cases, but those don't set the, if you fall below that, that doesn't set the standard. So is that what we'd be doing with if we overrule Geis-Miller here?
0: Um, <clears throat> well, I, I don't think so, because the Harris case said you don't need a psychological injury to... Yes. Right. So I'm just asking you, is, do
3: you think that's another
0: thing that we should do what the Supreme Court did in Harris? Say that? No, that's not accurate. Um, <clears throat> well, in, in, in Harris, the Supreme Court said you don't need psychological damage. But it did say quite clearly, if you have a report that would demonstrate some severity. It said that in the case. So I don't, I don't think that uh, Harris would uh, interfere with uh, at all with your doing away with the severe or pervasive standard.
3: So are you, here's my question, are you asking us to apply a reasonable person standard?
0: I am asking... You're-
3: You're asking us to look at Minnesota law and say would a reasonable person believe that, you know, this behavior created an an intimidating, hostile environment?
0: No. I'm, I'm asking only that we revert to what I perceive, putting aside the severe pervasive standard, is the law of the state of Minnesota. And that is subdivision 43 of the Minnesota Human Rights Act that's all you need
3: but doesn't don't you need to make some sort of judgment about how bad the conduct is how often it occurred I mean don't you use a totality of circumstances test even if even if we just applied Minnesota law
0: No, I, I, I don't think so because that's the difficulty with this severe or pervasive standard. Who knows what bad is? And uh, bad to one judge is not bad to another judge. It's uh, it's it's not very well laid out, and certainly not laid out sufficiently to. Uh, facilitate starry decisis because you get a bad case with 10 nasty things and then you get another one with 11 nasty things and one with 12 and pretty soon you have an absurd result. Uh, and for example, in, in this barber case, um, the the court basically said that, uh, if I can find it, That it is a, a mixed bag. The test of severe or pervasive, and that it doesn't make for a very good precedent.
4: Counsel, uh, if I may, Justice Hudson, over here. I know sometimes it's hard to tell where the voice is coming from. Um, I want to just chat with you a little bit about a broader concern I have, which is whether or not it's appropriate for us, for this court to make the change that you're talking about, as opposed to having the legislature do that. Um, you know, your brief talks a lot, and particularly in your reply brief, you talk about the the sea change that, is, that has come over society with respect to how we view sexual harassment. But, but I... I'm concerned though that whenever we get into what the social consensus is about any particular topic, that that we're not, we the judicial branch, uh, even the Supreme Court, we're not the, the best uh, judge of that. We should not be the judge of that as a matter of separation of powers. We don't have all of the various stakeholders, uh, despite the various amicus briefs. we don't have the various stakeholders before us. and. Opponents make your opponents make a strong argument that this is really a legislative matter. What, what's your response to that? Help me with that.
0: Well, I think this court is the ideal um, body to eliminate the severe pervasive standard simply because it engrafted it more or less onto uh, subdivision 43, which already was the definition uh, agreed upon by both the House, and the Senate, as appropriate, you know, for sexual harassment, the fact that they're split now uh, indicates more than ever that it's now is the time for this court to act and say that that standard ought not to apply, and uh, this court, having uh, a, you know used it and adopted, has every right to say. Uh, No longer. But, counsel, has
2: this court actually adopted the persistent and severe, or have we used it to inform our decisions?
0: I think you're right. I mean, no one has ever said, uh, oh, we hereby adopt this standard, but it kind of crept in, I think, you know, from some cases uh, in the federal government. Federal government, when when they, in mentor, Vincent and Mentor case, when when they used uh, severe or pervasive, and in Harris, uh, the federal government never had a definition because they only had Title VII it dealt basically with you know uh, discrimination between the sexes, but but once uh, they decided to uh, to u- use that standard, I think they did it because. This was the first time they were dealing with sexual harassment, and it was kind of an uh, an experiment in a sense, so they said let uh, let let's, let's put this in and uh, see what happens and If you read that Yale Law School review that gender justice uh, was so gracious in, in the Miekitz brief to uh, to cite, uh, they, they talk about the poster child. Uh, the Duncan case, for uh, these what we now look at as rather uh, somewhat absurd yeah. results, uh, they 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 uh, in in looking in looking at that case, the Duncan case, uh, you can see uh, that they were still uh, grasping what was going on with this situation. And uh, that was a very wrong decision, but it's cited all the time and very often uh, used. as
4: council, st- I, w- I just want to stop you a little bit because you, you said something. And this goes to your Duncan comment, I think, as you were answering me earlier, that at one point everyone agreed, the legislature agreed when, we had, uh, when uh, subdivision 43 was adopted. And the fact that they don't agree now... I want you to follow up on that, because I think that's key. Because if you look at um, the legislature's action in 2018, when a provision that would have adopted exactly what you're asking us to adopt, which is to get rid of, to eliminate the uh, severe and pervasive um, standard, the Senate came up with another version and said, no, we don't want that. They do disagree now. Isn't that relevant to, again, what the, the... the social construct, uh, social construct is right now and what the common morality is, if you will, right now. And that's my concern, is that we would be weighing in on that in, in a very decisive way if we were to change the law as opposed to letting the legislature work that out.
0: But we're dealing with common law. The imposition of this is common law. And this court can can make common law. This court ought not legislate, but it can make common law, and, and at one point, uh, this court, a number of years ago, it, it, it crept into, into the cases. Uh,
5: on that point, have, have we ever adopted the severe and perva- or pervasive standard as a matter of statutory interpretation? Uh, I haven't found any case where we've actually looked at the language of the statute and said that severe and pervasive is what the statute means. I, 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 to your point about this being a common law provision.
0: Uh, it certainly doesn't mean uh, severe or pervasive. There's nothing in the present 43 that, that means severe or pervasive. It doesn't mention it. I think the Court of Appeals said it, it, it doesn't mention it. Um, but, but it... The, one of the bad things about that severe, uh, severe or pervasive standard, it is so subjective that it creates unequal treatment. In other words, really, violation of equal protection. Because the law, uh, the severe and pervasive, is so loose and and trying to reach bad for one person and bad for another person, you have plaintiffs with great cases and they can't go any further than they have them thrown out. And you have other uh, plaintiffs with with, uh, close cases and they can go forward, but I think the statute itself, uh, eliminating that kind of subjectivity, permits it to go on. And this E.L.R. review uh, that I just mentioned, uh, it was came I think uh, a couple of years after the decision, just laid it out and said this is going to be a problem, and it and it was and is a problem. Now, 43, uh, well, let me, let me talk a minute here about totality of circumstances because that's important in these cases. And uh, with the subjectivity of the standard, and even in this case, for example, <clears throat> there, there was uh, a woman working for uh, Homeward Bound. Her name is Ivana Askridge. And she was an employee, and I deposed her. And, and she said that she was sexually harassed, and she mentioned four or five other women <coughs> who, who said they were dealt inappropriate by this uh, fellow, and I think those are party admissions. But she... Uh, She laid out a whole fact scenario uh, that would really uh, demonstrate how bad this person was, if I can use that word. And no one even—and uh, she filed two uh, complaints. No one ever investigated them. And, and uh, she she said, "This this fella, for example, he told her that uh, women are." like buses they come and they go and he didn't mean that uh in a transportation context uh and i'm sure you all read about that water example that she gave and she was working for the company at the time uh in, in telling uh, how he would stand behind women when they had to pick something up how he had a Uh, A a shoe fetish, there's one of the women there, he ran around and took pictures of her shoes. Uh, And I asked her point blank, you know, were you sexually harassed? And she said, yes. And she provided reputation testimony that he had a reputation for, for that kind of thing and said that he sexualized almost everything. Uh, This was part of the totality of the circumstances, yet neither the trial court nor the Court of Appeals even mentioned this woman.
4: Counsel, um, I want to go back to your point that the um, severe and pervasive uh, standard is so subjective. I think um, respondents will say that that you're making it into uh, a substantive requirement, and this may be a takeoff of Justice McCaig's question, but they say you're making it into a substantive requirement, and it's not that. It's, it's a framework by which we judge uh, various actions that that have occurred, um, and they liken it to sort of the McDonald Douglas, um, you know, shifting uh, uh, analysis. What's your response to that? That it's not a it's not a requirement, but it, it's a framework. It's a way we're able to judge uh, and to weigh and evaluate particular uh, actions. Because if it's the latter, it seems to me that is a, a more workable framework to, despite the maybe some subjectivity within it
0: well there may be some truth to what you say but you have to look at the disadvantage of doing that and the disadvantage of doing that is you have one, one you have unequal treatment you have a totally subjective standard uh, and it does, I, I've i read 215 pages of briefs in this case. I mean, I, don't, I haven't seen a cogent, consistent, clear definition of severe or pervasive that would facilitate uh, this, the doctrine of stare decisis even to make sense. It. it, it so you're trading off an awful lot when, when you do that. Um... It's not workable.
1: Thank you, Council. Your red light's on. You have 10 minutes for rebuttal. Thank you. Mr. Merkinich.
6: Uh, may it please the court, council, members of the audience. Uh, my name is Marco Mirkinich, and together with Emily McNee, we are pleased to be here as legal representatives of Homeward Bound Incorporated, a small nonprofit agency that provides residential and other services to some of the most intellectually and physically challenged among us. This court has taken review of four questions. In each case, it it is Homeward Bound's position that the Supreme Court should affirm the rulings of the Court of Appeals and the Trial Court. Specifically, the lower courts correctly held that to make a successful claim for sexual harassment under the Minnesota Human Rights Act and 30 years of established precedent for Minnesota courts and legislative history, an employee must show that the offensive behavior substantially interferes with the terms and conditions of employment, and creates an intimidating, hostile, and offensive work environment.
7: Isn't isn't that the word or, not and, between the two clauses, substantially interfering and
6: creating an? A, yes, it's an or, your honor.
7: Okay, you had said and, and I just want to make sure we we're on the same page.
6: We are on the same page. Okay. It, they're phrased in the disjunctive, or the as opposed to the conjunctive. D- does
5: that place. mean that substantially doesn't apply to the? second half of the, the the language after or
6: i would say no i think substantially interferes means or creates a hostile intimidating or offensive work environment so substantially goes with the word interferes and so, not with crates. not with not a right not with it's an adverb so it has to go with the verb rather than with the uh, hostile with the other adjectives.
7: Counsel, as long as we're on the words of the statute, help me figure out where severe or pervasive fits in here. The severe is severe or pervasive an element of a violation of the MA, MHRA. Um,
6: it depends just as to which claim you're talking about. The Minnesota Human Rights Act prohibits discrimination and protects people on any number of categories. I'm talking
7: about a sexual harassment claim.
6: And so with with other forms of harassment, yes, With sexual harassment, we have this definition which doesn't apply to other forms of harassment under the Human Rights Act, which are also prohibited as a result of judicial decision-making and the language of the statute.
7: So I'm just trying to figure out, if this case had gone to the jury, would the judge instruct the jury um, that this harassment needs to either substantially interfere or create an, an environment, and that the harassment needs to be severe or pervasive? In other words, is it a standalone element or is it a descriptor of the words that are within the statute?
6: Essentially, Your Honor, when this language was adopted by the legislature in 1982, it mirrored the language of the EEOC regulations on hostile environment sexual harassment. Subsequent to that adoption, the EEOC also adopted language in their regulations that define severe or pervasive and also dealt with the issue of objective or subjective or both as a requirement for who is offended and in in case law basically the meritor savings bank and then the harris versus forklift the u.s supreme court adopted both of those descriptors objective subjective from harris and then severe or pervasive in meritor and the minnesota Human Rights Department, when the 2001 amendments to the Human Rights Act were adopted, specifically used that language as what was required in order to establish a violation. This court on multiple occasions, first with Cummings using the word pervasive.
7: Yeah, counsel, I, I appreciate you. You certainly know the history of it well. My question is, is it a standalone, el- alone el- is it a stand-alone element or is it a descriptor of, of one clause or the other or both
6: uh, within the act? It, it is the way this court and other courts have defined what is required to establish a violation of the act. So I don't know that descriptor is the right term. I think the legal framework or the legal standard used to determine whether an environment is hostile, intimidating, or offensive, or whether something substantially interferes with employment, This is one way in which the courts have said, we determine that, and the Minnesota legislature has agreed every time it has addressed the question. So is it an element? I think it is a framework, and it's a standard to use to determine whether the statute has been violated. I think of it as a standard more than an element. But I think you could argue it's an element, but element conveys a different sort of purpose, I think if you look at the case law that defines what the elements of a sexual harassment claim are, the fourth element is typically this: what we're talking about here, whether it's a hostile, intimidating, or offensive environment, or whether it is something that substantially interferes. And then within that fourth element, there's a standard for saying, how do we tell whether something's... So, so in- is your view
7: but- that a jury needs to be... In- when, it, when it reaches the fourth element that the district court needs to instruct the jury that when I say substantially interferes or creates an environment, I mean you've got to find out that the harassment was severe or
6: pervasive. Uh, basically, yes, Your Honor. that The instructions say in determining whether the there is a hostile environment established or whether something substantially interferes, we look to these things. And the, basically, the two standard tests that exist are whether this is severe or pervasive, on the one hand, and then whether it would be offensive to... Uh, this person subjectively or to an objective person and so in the case law i think what you see and this is sort of one of the points of departure between let
2: me ask you the question that i asked opposing counsel is has this court adopted the severe and pervasive or have we have we used it as a way of informing our law because i because i because i think there's a difference
6: I believe that it, the court has adopted it, starting in Cummings, where it used the word pervasive to describe what needed to be shown. And then I believe in Freeler versus Carlson in 2008 it adopted it. I believe Lamont once again adopts it. So I believe there's a consistent history of this court adopting severe or pervasive as what is required to establish a violation of the law. And I think that in... In doing so, in response to questions that were asked earlier, the court has drawn very sharp distinctions between coworker harassment and harassment involving a supervisor. And in fact, I think if you look at the cases, that often is the key factor. There has been no case cited to this court where coworker harassment involving allegations of the kind at issue in this matter have been held sufficient to establish liability. And that's by the Minnesota Court in all of the cases. In Geis-Miller, the one referred to by Justice Chuditch, that was a supervisor and even business owner making inappropriate comments. By contrast, there was a, a case decided a few years earlier by the Court of Appeals called Gagliardi, where the Court of Appeals found that was sufficient. But again, the conduct is nothing like what's involved here, and it was not co-worker activity. And I think that's important to keep in mind here as we measure why Why do we have severe pervasive as a standard? No one is in favor of sexual harassment in the workplace. Homeward Bound has a strong policy prohibiting sexual harassment in the workplace. The state legislature and the courts have made clear sexual harassment is not a good thing. It is a bad thing. And it has worked hard to provide protections to employees and guidance to employers about how to protect your workforce and how to provide a safe and effective work environment. That's what Homeward Bound has done in this case. Anthony Johnson... Apparently, according to Ms. Kenna, behaved badly. According to Mr. Johnson, he denied the allegations. There were no witnesses. Ms. Kenna's concerns in the affidavit uh, took place after Ms. I'm sorry, Ms. Eskridge's uh, concerns talked about were never made to human resources based on her deposition testimony and took place after uh, Ms. Kenna's employment had ended as a reporting matter. And even then, even though they happened afterwards and were after the fact, Homeward Bond still investigated those concerns when they were expressed. But to go back to the, to the main punchline of this, as an employer, when you have coworkers who work together, you cannot monitor every conversation, every interaction. But it's important to see that in the actual written complaint that Ms. Kenna submitted to Human Resources, you can see what is described as the activity. There is no physical touching. There is no direct proposition or request for a date or to create a relationship. There's not a supervisory relationship. And those are critical differences and distinctions drawn in the case law. And with respect to the allegation about a comment that, if made, was clearly inappropriate, that the, the the version that is here
3: big counsel this is here on summary judgment so you say if made but we have to assume that it was made that, absolutely that he said i he looked at her directly and said i eat women and then in her deposition she said he also said i i eat you tw- twice i mean We can't judge credibility on a summary judgment motion.
6: Uh, That's correct, Your Honor, but you can judge credibility based on what the witness's own account was. And Ms. Kenna's testimony was inconsistent with her written report, but even then, A one-time comment or a two-time comment. She fleshed
3: it out a a little bit more, but the written report still has the objectionable statement. It does. And made face-to-face with a larger guy, that's going to be a pretty uncomfortable and shocking situation.
6: And that's why, when she made the complaint, it was promptly and thoroughly investigated by Homeward Bound. And Ms. Kenna was asked whether there were any witnesses, and she said no. Mr. Johnson was asked if he had said these things, he said no. Admittedly, we can't resolve what happened in this proceeding, nor do we need to. But Homeward Bound did a prompt and thorough investigation, and when it conducted that investigation, it was unable to determine what happened. So what did Homeward Bound do? First, when it received the report, it immediately— Counsel,
2: on the issue of what Homeward Bound did, did the district court actually address that?
6: The the district court addressed it only— in passing but did not directly rule on that. The Court of Appeals though, did directly address this issue and say it formed an independent basis to affirm the result, because Homeward Bound has a policy, trains people, received a complaint, promptly and thoroughly investigated that complaint, and after doing so, and while doing so suspended Mr. Johnson from employment and did the investigation when it concluded, it said to Mr. Johnson, you are not to be alone with her, you're not to be in her presence when other people are not present. And they required that Mr. Johnson undergo additional training and retraining on the sexual harassment policy. He'd been trained once when he was hired. And after that, Ms. Kenna made no further complaints to Human Resources about Mr. Johnson during the remainder of her employment. I should note, Mr. Johnson was but, but a... What do,
3: what do we do with the part where she says she went back to her supervisor a couple times after he had been warned to stay away from her, and she reported that he was still coming around and and licking his lips, that kind of thing?
6: Um, Well, first of all, what what we do with that is say, well, she now says that she mentioned to her supervisor on a couple of occasions. The investigation was completed on April 7th, and the results communicated around the 10th or 11th. Her last day of work was June 26th. Mr. Johnson was out... Uh, from work during the time that they were there, uh, during the time the investigation was ongoing. Um, whether, in fact, that happened doesn't matter because she was instructed to bring this back to human resources as a matter of complaint. She admits she did not do that. Her testimony about whether and so when... if she doesn't bring it to the, the party that she's supposed to bring it, then it's not sexual harassment? No, this goes to the adequacy of the response, not to the existence of whether there is or is not harassment. I would submit that the behavior so,
7: here, so the employer can overlook the alleged harassment uh,
6: because because the complaint's going to the wrong person? No, that's not the point, Your Honor. The point is that you have a process in place for bringing a complaint forward. And when a person follows that process and brings a complaint forward, how does the employer then, respond? Didn't her,
7: didn't her supervisor have an obligation to bring the complaint to HR? Did the, the, I mean, is, is, is the... Is the conduct excused because the supervisor, it ends with the supervisor and not with HR?
6: Well, first of all, the, 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 the policy says bring it to HR. She brought it to HR, HR investigated, and she was told to bring future complaints to human resources. She did not and admit she did not. She offers testimony about saying, I mentioned it so, to so my supervisor. So the
7: employer doesn't have liability because it went to the supervisor and then he didn't take, did the supervisor bring it to the attention of HR?
6: There, no, there was no communication between, it, it, it was a she, between the, the supervisor with whom Ms. Kenna was having disagreements on other topics and HR. And the testimony from Ms. Kenna is not clear that these complaints to her supervisor actually post-dated the investigation. There's no testimony that fixes those times specifically in a way that would suggest they were after that.
1: Council, can I just move back I, off this question of whether the employer's response was adequate and just the threshold question of whether there's a sexual harassment claim here stated. Um, I asked opposing counsel about, uh, well, he, opposing counsel relied on page 114 of the plaintiff's deposition to support the argument that essentially um, the the conduct was was occurring every day. Um, And I'm just wondering if you have a response to the reliance on page 114 for the proposition that there's a question of fact here created on whether uh, there was sexual harassment.
6: Uh, uh, Your Honor, I looked at page 114 and I didn't see anything that addressed that topic. So there may be a miscommunication about page numbers
1: no it says but he was so persistent you know every day Okay,
6: but that, that deals with the comments and the questions and licking his lips um, basically. But, but I mean come on
1: now right? if a male let I me mean, let's just take it out of this context okay mm-hmm. if, a, if a male comes up to a woman um, every day and is licking his lips at her in against the backdrop of what is alleged to have happened here I mean isn't that severe and pervasive or at least there's a question of fact about whether it is
6: Uh, your honor we would submit no there is not in fact if you look at the case law that the case law requires the cases that have been decided in applying the standards that have developed under both state law and in the state courts and federally have required either a supervisory relationship some form of physical touching some form of direct request to begin a relationship or have a relationship or some form of pornography or other graphic so, sexual so behavior. as a matter of as
5: a matter of this type of issue there's cases that are decided saying this doesn't rise this does in terms of what's severe and pervasive is we're bound by decisions made 20 30 years ago about what standards should apply or shouldn't why why shouldn't this just generally go to a jury to decide what's severe and pervasive, so juries can apply kind of the context of today instead of what a judge thought, a guy judge likely, 20 years ago.
6: Well, with all respect, Justice Thiessen, uh, in fact, the Lamont decision by this court, where the facts took place two or three years before the facts... Relying on
5: prior case
6: law. That and goes back a long time. i decided
5: in uh, Relying on prior case law that goes back a long time.
6: Oh, and, and those arguments were made to the legislature, that the legislature should... St- so you think the, the legislature should step in and say,
5: well, we're going to keep severe and pervasive, but we think it sh- that one is, n- is not enough, but two is? The legislature is going to get into that kind of discussion? I'm asking about whether this severe and pervasive, not whether it should be taken, uh, should be disappear or not but whether it's really a jury issue and we should let juries who understand the social context make these decisions instead of judges sitting in their robes making that decision
6: well fundamentally all cases face create that same issue and there is no special rule for employment cases this court has said that because
5: we usually don't decide fact issues
6: on summary judgment but with respect to there are no fact issues being decided here by the, by either the trial you're court. saying it is because you're saying well you
5: got to touch them or you got um, you know you've you listed out four things that you have to do to make it severe or pervasive. That should be for the jury shouldn't it
6: What should be for the jury is whether on these facts as alleged it making the appropriate summary judgment factual
5: So someone comes in and says, I eat women, I eat you, and licks his lips constantly every day, which is the facts, that is not, that's not a fact question, whether it's severe, whether, whether sexual harassment occurred?
6: We believe under the existing case law, the way the courts have interpreted that standard and applied it to those undisputed facts, that does not meet the standard for severe or pervasive. And the, it's the role of the court to decide Council,
3: whether- Counsel, do you agree that under the severe or pervasive stand, standard, it's a sliding scale? And if you have one episode that's bad enough, that can be the ball game?
6: Yes, Your Honor. I think it's always hard to look at severe or pervasive in isolation from the objective, subjective requirement. So I think that the two get mixed sometimes but yes, in certain circumstances, and I think the, uh, the, the, uh, the Harbridge case is an example of one where a single incident was enough, and there was no doubt about that.
5: So, so just to come back to this reasonable question, again, typically we assess whether something's reasonable by sending it to a jury,
6: right? Not in all cases, Your Honor. No. I think that what we're talking about here is the standard within the sexual harassment law that comes from the Harris versus Forklift case that says, in order for actions to be offensive, and you judge it by the subjective perception of the person who is the, uh, the, the person who's subjected to the behavior, and you also judge by how would a reasonable person respond to that. And I'm saying well, clearly there's not a dispute
5: about how Miss Kenna viewed this behavior as a subjective matter I mean there's that, that that's that's pretty clear but that, so the question is whether a summary
6: judgment issue
5: but the question is whether it was reasonable or not and and so outside of sexual harassment cases or we usually send the issue of whether something's reasonable or not to a jury right
6: we we sometimes do and sometimes don't depending on what the facts are and whether the facts applying the summary judgment standard do in fact permit the matter or suggest the matter should go to a jury or not.
2: Council, on the Meritor case that you just cited, though, that's a Title VII case. And what what impact, if any, or should it have, that the Minnesota Human Rights Act has um, a broader purpose?
6: well i don't know that the purpose of the minnesota human rights act is broader than title seven i think in fact if you go back to 1978 and dan's the court specifically recognized that the the minnesota human rights act was modeled on title seven so I'm, i'm there's they've been interpreted in concert with one another as to the purpose of the laws throughout their history so from my perspective when i look at what is in fact required in order to establish a violation the human rights act and title seven have been interpreted together for many many years and there are statements from both federal courts and state courts recognizing that fact including this court um, on at least four or five occasions so I believe both laws are remedial and they're intended to do two things. They're intended to advance the interests protected by the laws and protect employees and advance employees. And they're also intended to provide employers with guidance and and direction as to how they can go about complying with these laws by giving clear standards. And we believe that's what, in fact, the courts have done here.
4: Council, Council, if I may, um, kind of picking up on Justice Thiessen's questions. Would you at least agree that if you look at our summary judgment cases over the last four years or so, and I'm thinking of Montemayor and that line of cases, that we have made pretty clear that we're on this reasonableness issue in in a close case. And this is certainly that. Uh, if nothing else where as uh, your opponent said at the beginning he's calling it seduction she's saying it's sexual harassment that's for the jury okay. at least again if you're looking at certainly our more, most recent um, decisions
6: well if you look at Lamont your honor I would suggest this case is right in line and is actually less severe than any conduct alleged in Lamont where it was a supervisor acting it was a unanimous, well, I, let me rephrase, it was a Supreme Court decision that clearly said this is a case ripe for summary judgment. But Does was it, it
3: matter that that, was, uh, that wasn't a sexual harassment case, that was discrimination based on gender?
6: It was with allegations that contained reference to a supervisor talking about the role of women and also talking about sexual activity with his wife, with others. I believe it was very much in line with the facts in this case. An employer cannot be a guardian of every conversation between two non-exempt employees doing their job. What they have to do and what their responsibility is is to provide a process then when bad things happen, when people work together, that the person can bring those concerns forward and have them investigated and responded to.
4: Counsel, let me go back to maybe just first principles. What is wrong with, just as a matter of plain language uh, analysis, when you look at uh, subdivision 43, it does not say anything about severe and persuasive. It simply says conduct or communication that has the purpose or effect of substantially interfering. What's wrong with simply applying that
6: test? Your Honor, I think the courts do apply that test and saying severe or pervasive is part of that application. But
4: we've had, and I can't remember the names of the cases off the top of my head, but um, your opponent cites them in his brief. We've decided cases before we came up with severe and persuasive under the substantially interfering. So the courts can do that. We can do that.
6: The court has used the word pervasive going back to the Cummings case in, in the 20th century. But maybe we were wrong. Sometimes
4: sometimes we get it wrong or evidence or as time goes on it shows that it's not a workable test and that it's, if nothing else, it's simply
6: unfair. But there's nothing that suggests this test is unfair. It's been applied consistently by this court, the courts in this state and federal courts. But then then you come up with decisions
4: like Duncan, don't you? But then you come up with decisions like Duncan and others that I think any reasonable person today would say, "My goodness, that—that's sexual harassment. Uh, Women, no one should have to put up with that."
6: Duncan is a Missouri case decided by the Eighth Circuit. It isn't applying the Minnesota Human Rights Act, and it took place after a trial where a court reversed the jury. The the claimant did not argue the severe pervasive standard had been met based on what the Eighth Circuit wrote. So Duncan is really not directly apropos of our case. In this situation, it's important to remember that the courts have provided 30 years of guidance. The legislature has provided the guidance it did. And when you put that together with the way Homeward Bound responded when the complaint was brought forward, it shows that there's no basis on which a reasonable jury could, or any jury could find in favor of Ms. Kenna after a trial. And for that reason, as the Dietrich case uh, recognized, it's appropriate to enter summary judgment. Counsel, the
7: Chief Justice has allowed me to ask one more question, even though your red light is on. Let's assume a situation where you've got a sexual harassment claim, and the uh, the district court instructs the jury in the words of subdivision 43. And the uh, counsel for the employer says, well, we want an instruction using the words severe or pervasive, and the district court judge says, I'm not gonna give that instruction. Would that be error, not to instruct the jury using
6: the words severe or pervasive? Well, again, this is a hypothetical case where we're not present yet, but I would say this, that the court should use that, in that language in the instruction, just as it should use the words subjective and objective to describe what's required for the reaction. Would, would the, it be error? I, it would depend on the case, whether that was or was not error. In some cases, I could see it being error and I would argue it was error. In other cases where that was not the issue, I would think it is not error.
1: Thank you, counsel. Uh, Mr. Lowry, you ha- Laurie, you have ten minutes for rebuttal.
0: Uh, I think it was Justice Hudson that mentioned state. I think it was Justice Hudson who mentioned stakeholders. Um, And I thought about stakeholders. We've got the victim or the plaintiff. We've got the uh, perpetrator. We've got the employer. We've got the judges at different levels. Uh, And then, very importantly, we've got the agencies. We've got Minnesota, Minnesota Department of Human Rights, EEOC, St. Paul and Minneapolis both have civil or human rights uh, commissions that actually can hear cases and decide cases. So the stakeholders here aren't just the courts. Now now we're feeding the severe or pervasive uh, tests down the line where maybe and probably a large majority of the cases are going. And some are lawyers and some aren't if we have these kind of discussions among lawyers, what are these folks, these other stakeholders gonna do? It's just a test that's unworkable. And the simplicity of 43A is something that is uh, very well thought out, and the legislature did a good job. And when I was thinking how to frame this case, I said, "Well." You know, the lower courts didn't come up with any standard. And and even before there was this discussion, I I just said, well, let's see what the Human Rights Act says. And uh, it's a good, workable standard. Nothing is perfect. But it's something all the stakeholders can work with. And that ought to be considered. Now, you're hearing about the wonderful job that... uh, H. Uh, homeward Bound uh, did in responding to these complaints. Well, uh, what they did is they, they trained this perpetrator for one day, and they paid him, and uh, a few days later, he sees Ms. Kenna, and he says, Hi, sexy. Uh, so the training wasn't that good, and neither was the investigation. Who did they talk to? They talked to Ms. Kenna and the perpetrator. Those two two individuals. And what did they come up with? It's inconclusive. Now, with these severely disabled people out there, uh, to have uh, this man continue to work there with an inconclusive decision... How how sensible is that? And, of course, we contend they fired her and kept him. So uh, I don't think uh, the response was very good at all. Um, now, you know, here's another issue. They've got a zero-tolerance uh, policy, and yet they say while they can argue... This uh, complaint or a complaint was filed with the supervisor instead of the human resources person or this little point or that little point provides uh, a defense to this case. Well, how can you have a zero tolerance policy and then want to, when somebody is injured by sexual harassment, say, I'm sorry, it wasn't severe or pervasive so you can't recover. It seems to me that uh, this court, and we've raised this argument here, because how can you have a zero-tolerance policy and then let something uh, like this go on and even use it as a shield when the
7: claim is coming in? Counsel, I'd like to ask you about what's in the record or what the record reflects. Now, it's Ms. Kenna's contention that she did make a couple of reports to her supervisor And it sounds like her contention is that occurred after the investigation came to an end. Am I right about that? I think you're right about that. And is there anything in the record, does does the supervisor admit receiving one or more complaints from Ms. Kenna? I did not depose uh, the supervisor, so I don't know the answer to that question. The supervisor hasn't been deposed? No. I took five to six depositions in one day.
0: Uh, I don't know uh, what she did, but I would assume
7: that it was transmitted to HR. Well, sir, you can't assume that because there's there's nothing in the record about it, right? You're correct. Thank you.
3: Um, What does the record show that after the investigation was completed... Your client says he came to my office within a few days, said, hi, sexy, continued the licking of the lips, right? That's what your client has said in a deposition. And as I understand the record, and correct me if I'm wrong, but she also said she went back to her supervisor a couple times to say, hey, his behavior hasn't stopped.
7: Yes. And, counsel, back on the record, did uh, HBI, in response to, in in connection with a summary judgment motion, put in any affidavit from the supervisor saying Ms. Kenna didn't contact him or that he he did or did not pass on any complaints to HR? No. Excuse me, you mentioned the supervisor was a woman. If I referred to the supervisor as he, I'm I'm, uh, in error. I didn't hear that, Your Honor. That's fine, we can move on. Okay, thank you.
0: Another problem with uh, applying the severe or pervasive standard is these cases get dismissed. Most of them don't get get appealed. So we don't really know what's going on. I think, I think uh, time has passed us by with regard to the severe or pervasive standard, and it's time to uh, take this case under advisement and to uh, change that standard. With regard to following federal law, there is this Rasmussen case in the Court of Appeals that mentions the Cummins case was a departure to that, and I, I say this only because- Well, I think that was our case, Rasmussen. Well, it went up. Right, the, ultimately. The it Court went. of Appeals. We reverse the Court of Appeals. Right. Yeah. All right. The, uh, it, it's time to look at this standard and say we should move on. Now, I want to say this. Even the judges are getting a little bit confused. Uh, footnote one of uh, the district court's opinion here cites uh, for the proposition that we follow the federal law. Well, we don't follow it all the time, and we didn't follow it in the case that the court cited, Levon Anderson. Uh, it probably was dicta in there. I don't think it's that significant in
4: this case. But you, you, you would agree, though, uh, as the chief notes in Rasmussen, we reversed the court of appeals. and Rasmussen, clearly says in this sexual harassment context, it says eh, Cummings was was a narrow opinion. We follow the federal law. I mean, that's
0: that's that's I admit the holding. That. I admit that. But, you know, I mean, following any law, you have to look at persuasive authority and say, is it good, is it persuasive? And in in federal law, we are not bound legally to follow federal precedent. So I think that's a a statement of the obvious. But I'm going to conclude, and I thank you for your time. there's no further questions.
1: Thank you, counsel. Thanks to all counsel for the help you provided to the court in this case. This matter is submitted. We'll issue an opinion in due course.